prevention, permanent supportive housing, shelters, rapid rehousing, and services to help people get a job, overcome addiction, and treat mental illness, all have verifiably helped people find shelter and better their lives. We can both count the people who have been helped and watch a plethora of interviews and documentaries about such people. And I'm not revealing any secret. These are the mainstream responses that charities and governments have been applying. The amount of permanent supportive housing, shelter beds, and rapid housing have been increasing. However, an appropriate question is, if these strategies work, then why do homeless numbers in several large cities implementing these strategies seem to only go up? There are individuals who don't succeed because there is no perfect intervention and it is a tough problem to tackle. Nevertheless, these programs have helped a lot of people, but that doesn't seem to affect the aggregate numbers. Why? An obvious answer is because additional people become homeless. In one year, the Los Angeles Housing Services Authority was able to give 20,000 homeless people a place to live. But Los Angeles County's homeless population grew by 12% because 34,000 to 55,500 people lost their homes. There's a constant churn of people who make mistakes, hit in unfortunate events, have relationship problems, or whose mental issues reach a peak. And ultimately, there is a reason why people so easily become homeless. People's incomes are too low relative to the cost of housing. When people are living on the edge, when just one or a few missing paychecks is enough to send someone out of their home, then we have a society where low-income people are particularly vulnerable to homelessness. Part of the problem is that people at the bottom of the income ladder don't get paid enough. A higher earned income tax credit would help here, especially if it could be paid out monthly to help with rent. Other solutions are a higher minimum wage or a universal basic income, but I fear these policies would increase unemployment, and unemployment is certainly a cause of homelessness. Another more direct solution would be to expand rent subsidies. People can better afford rent if the government pays for part of it. Experimental studies find evidence that vouchers reduce homelessness and improve housing outcomes. Many landlords are reluctant to take voucher tenants. Others specialize in voucher tenants when the voucher is higher than the market rate or is more reliable than cash-paying low-income tenants. Some voucher tenants may be more likely to pay on time and not keep extra people in their apartments because they don't want to lose their subsidy. They should be able to afford it because it's income-based. However, landlords will also avoid voucher tenants because of bureaucratic delays, inspections, rent control, and the perception that such tenants are more likely to damage the building or be evicted. Some have proposed laws forcing landlords to accept subsidy-paying tenants. There could be a middle ground where landlords can't deny someone based on vouchers unless they already have a certain number of them. Then not accepting based on whether or not the applicant is paying with a voucher is allowed. 
There's a concern that vouchers may increase general rents. Research on vouchers sometimes finds that there isn't an increase in overall rents because of voucher programs, but some studies do find evidence of this. One study found that prices increased only for housing in the program's targeted quality range and in markets with inelastic supply. It looks like the voucher effect on rents is small enough to make the help vouchers provide worth it. Maybe bigger than low incomes is the ludicrous price of housing in some cities, and prices are only rising. Even in relatively cheap locations, the price of housing is growing, but in many areas the price is already above the clouds. The demand for housing is higher than the supply, so a long-term solution is to build more housing, especially housing affordable for low-income people. The price of housing isn't just a first cause of homelessness. It limits the extent that governments and charities can help the homeless. Permanent supportive housing can't help many people if building even modest apartments for the homeless is out of this world expensive. A 2019 Los Angeles estimate put the price of building one unit at $530,000 plus. A San Jose project is estimated to cost $470,000 per unit. Housing first simply isn't going to work when housing is this expensive. No charity or state can afford to house the chronically homeless at these rates. To help the potentially and current homeless, the price of housing must be solved. Tax credits for the construction and maintenance of low-income housing are made available, but there aren't enough tax credits to induce sufficient low-income housing, and such tax credits have major issues. The Low-Income Housing Tax Credit is a program where the federal government gives credits to states, who then give them to developers. In return, developers agree to cap rents for units that they designate as low-income. This is designed to both incentivize construction and provide low-rent rooms for those with low income. However, critics say that these credits mostly benefit investors, developers, and financial companies. Administering it is complex, susceptible to abuse, and costly. The complexity of this tax credit increases costs and delays at least partially through the time it takes to put together financing as well as legal and other transaction costs. Furthermore, additional requirements for financing, construction, and labor raise costs. One poor incentive is that these projects are often financed by cost plus. This involves credit allocations being based on estimated costs. Developers have the incentive to estimate high and not keep costs down because the higher the costs, the more credits they get. Because the feds pay for it, but states and localities manage it, there's less incentive for these local officials to limit costs because it's federal funds they're wasting, not their own. Landlords must keep track of their residents' income to make sure they qualify for the cheaper apartments and have to worry about legal action or a loss of tax credits if they fail. This adds administration costs. Some state manuals for such owners can be over a hundred pages. The additional legal and accounting services are a deep expense. 
There are also bureaucratic costs at both the state and federal levels for administering the program. A Congressional Budget Office report said that it's possible that investors capture a lot of the benefits rather than the tenants. A variety of studies and experts agree with the idea that developers and investors benefit far too much compared to the tenants. Actual poor tenants may only receive 24% of the subsidies, with the rest going to profit-making entities. Other estimates have the tenant portions being between 35 and 35%. I'm all for profit, but not when the revenue comes from inefficient government programs. Are we going deeper into debt and using taxpayer money to help developers and investors, or the poor? The goal was the poor. If that goal isn't being met, then the program should be cut. Does a program at least help the poor? This isn't clear. A study of 330 metropolitan statistical areas concluded that the rents for these units were regularly more or close to unsubsidized rents. Furthermore, tenants, developers, and officials commit fraud and abuse, stealing from the country. Tenants sometimes give false information to get the rooms even when not eligible. Developers inflate their construction costs, and politicians have been caught unfairly giving the credits to developers who support their election campaigns as well as demanding straight-up bribes. The tax credit is so complex that the IRS can't manage and enforce its rules properly. Another problem, some studies don't find increased housing in areas with more tax credits, meaning the credits probably crowd out market buildings and don't actually increase housing. Maintaining these apartments is difficult too because landlords have limits on how much they can raise rent. So if rents aren't enough to maintain the buildings, they fall into disrepair. Also, because the rent levels are limited, demand for the units is high and landlords don't need to entice tenants with good maintenance. Vouchers are a better alternative than the low-income housing tax credit because they are more efficient and don't tie the subsidy to a specific location. Voucher users can shop for a variety of voucher-accepting apartments. An assortment of government and academic studies find that vouchers are cheaper than tax credits. If so, there doesn't seem to be a need to have both programs. Another strategy to increase affordable housing is to require that new apartments include a number of low-priced units that charge less than market rent. However, this usually increases the rent for everyone else. Rather than requiring it, most such policies make it voluntary and allow some regulation relief in exchange for including the low-priced units. This may be better than a mandatory policy because developers may not be able to sell enough market-rate units in middle- and low-income neighborhoods to make up for the below-market-rate affordable apartments. This could result in less housing overall as developers choose not to take on certain projects. A big cause of high housing costs is current homeowners. Current homeowners, and even renters, don't want more people around them. They don't want their places more crowded. They don't want more traffic. They don't want to live near lower-income people. They don't want their nice, one-bedroom community to be encroached upon by cheap apartments. They don't want their housing values limited by living near such less desirables. And it is the current homeowners who vote and influence government to not allow more construction. Many of these people are all for more low-income housing, just not near them. One achievement that would help increase 
housing supply is to overcome the political resistance and allow more low-income housing to be built and permit current housing zoned for one household living to allow multi-household arrangements. As of 2020, 75% of land in most U.S. cities is zoned for only single-family detached houses. This means anything else, including townhouses, duplexes, and apartments, are illegal. Additionally, limits on building height and requirements for minimum lot sizes not only limit the occupancy of housing projects, but lower the profitability, making it so some just won't get built. When the price of land is a key problem, then building more living units per area of land will limit the price of housing. The percentage of a city's area that forbids all but single-family housing correlates with higher housing costs. So does the level of political opposition to housing development. One idea is to increase the tax on land itself compared to the total cost of a property. This would give landowners the incentive to make more use of the land in such a way that leads to more residents per area. This would increase the supply of housing, decrease commuting times, and decrease the cost of housing. For those who want to keep the land relatively unpopulated, they'll have to pay in taxes for the impact this has on the community. A related issue is that in some of these cities and states, California is the infamous exemplar, it is way too hard to build. The amount of regulations one has to weave through and hurdles one has to jump are tremendous. A lot of well-meaning laws meant to keep people safe, areas nice, the environment green, and workers well-paid are used to prevent building. This both discourages construction in the first place and makes construction much more expensive, which means higher rents are needed to make up for the costs. And landlords can get away with charging higher rents due to the lack of housing. These regulations have to be relaxed. The environment matters. But so does people being able to afford housing. It's nice to pay construction workers high wages, but high wages don't outweigh the need for housing. It's way too easy to sue to stop construction for a variety of reasons. And this must be made much harder. If we relax the rules and allow builders to build, rents will ease, and this will greatly limit the flow of homeless people onto our streets and into our shelters. Rules keeping housing up to a certain standard maybe also should be relaxed. It's hard for society and government, in top-down solutions, to say what the minimum standard should be. If setting minimum standards too high leads to too little housing being built in the first place, then maybe those standards should be lowered so that cheap apartments that the poor can afford will be available. Historically, in the United States, the poor lived in substandard housing, but this gave them a place to live while they figured out how to make their way in the world. Eventually, they moved on. Since then, we have put on many regulations, and now the super cheap housing that the poor could afford doesn't exist. Relying too much on subsidies could actually backfire to the extent that builders may prefer profitable subsidized apartments than making cheaper housing, and they may lobby less than they otherwise would for regulation reduction because they are satisfied with their subsidies. Since the mid-1800s, the United States has had a bad track record of public housing. While such projects usually find initial success, 
they quickly become dilapidated and often turn into slums. It's difficult to keep housing maintained when the rents paid by tenants don't cover the maintenance costs. It's unlikely that overseers not driven by the profit motive will keep the building in good condition, or to even have, consistently over the decades, the state supplied money to do so in the first place. If rents are enough to pay maintenance with profit for the owners, the system can survive on its own. Whether it's a bureaucracy or a charity, if tenant rents aren't enough to maintain the housing, the housing is unlikely to stay in good condition for long due to lack of funds and incentives. Bureaucracies have less incentive than a private owner to keep down maintenance costs, and their tenants have less leverage to demand good maintenance because they are not customers. Also, private owners don't have electoral pressure to hire expensive workers and use expensive materials and equipment in such a way that benefits constituents. Owners of cheap housing have the incentive to work hard to keep their tenants happy enough while also keeping costs low. Public and nonprofit ownership don't have the same incentives. It's good to remember that shiny new apartments are not the completed destination. The completed destination are those apartments housing people for decades. Who's more likely to keep up the quality of the apartments? Someone who has to compete for customers and gain profit from cost savings? Or someone whose only incentive is the goodness of their hearts and who has to rely on politicians or charity for funding? A mitigation against deregulation as a powerful solution is that even places like Utah, with less environmental and other regulations than California, and with a great amount of new housing built, have still been struggling with a massive surge of housing prices and a housing market that is too geared for the high end compared to what the average person can afford. This could indicate that no amount of deregulation will work, and some government intervention will be necessary. That said, Utah still has some restrictions, like zoning laws that limit density. Zoning laws that prohibit anything but single-family homes are one of the most expensive laws there are. It's possible that large changes allowing tall apartments, duplexes, and multifamily housing would be enough to alleviate the problem. It's also possible that locations with hot economies and a population of skilled wealthy workers inevitably don't provide enough cheap housing for lower and lower middle income folk. Utah has seen a lot of building, but far too much of it is expensive single-family homes rather than cheaper townhomes and multifamily homes. The incentives for developers may just not be there, and there may not be enough old housing to downgrade to cheap housing. If that is the case, government intervention will be needed. It can't be known if that's the case, because deregulating to the extreme has not been done, and there are too many variables to logic it all out. But the point is moot in that, politically, we're never going to get extreme deregulation. So realistic policies are a combination of loosening restrictions where the locals will stomach it, while also providing subsidies. Ideally, in the form of a direct payment by something like an earned income tax credit. But housing vouchers will do. On Utah, especially since 2020, the state is working hard to convince and require localities to take actions on things like density and zoning reform. So, it is a state to watch. Hopefully, some good studies and good results come out of their efforts. Generally, studies find a positive relationship between zoning restrictions, rent levels, 
and homelessness across locations. However, changes in rent levels don't show a correlation. This is very understudied in the literature. Okay, but what should we do? On the income side, we need to have a sufficient and regularly paid earned income tax credit. For those who don't work, unemployment insurance, disability, or retirement supplements can be the source of additional income rather than the earned income tax credit. This is superior to housing subsidies because subsidies incentivize people to buy more housing than they need. If I'm given cash, then I pay the full cost of any larger or nicer housing I get. Some people will then choose cheaper options so they can spend that money on other things or save it. On the other hand, to get the full value of a subsidy, I have to get the nicest rooms the subsidy will pay for, using more money than I'd choose to if I'd otherwise get to keep the cash. This means, for the same amount of money, people's spending choices are below their ideal. It's a waste of public resources and likely increases the total cost of housing due to it raising demand for more expensive housing. It's better to give people the money and let them decide what they need rather than pigeonhole available welfare dollars in the amount the government guesses people need for particular goods. Thus, an expanded earned income tax credit would be superior to a rent subsidy like a voucher. However, if that isn't in the cards, vouchers are good too. I discussed the earned income tax credit more in my piece on the minimum wage. On the building side, government tax credits to developers have been highly problematic. Vouchers, or increasing people's income, will incentivize building on their own because people can better afford housing. The main key to more housing is to not prevent the market from building to meet the demands of the people. This means mass deregulation on a large variety of hurdles and requirements that developers currently have to jump and meet. Deregulation would be my priority, but I can't know for sure if it'd be enough, and the amount needed may not be possible politically. So, it may be necessary to find less efficient ways to incentivize or require cheap housing. The government may even need to build such housing themselves. These solutions are not ideal and should not be the first focus, but I'm open to them if the other solutions aren't working or can't be done politically.